Good ideas are like red wine. They need time in the cellar for refinement. Here's where I keep mine. Welcome to 55 Degrees. Welcome back to 55 Degrees. We're working on the series titled The Faith I've Always Wanted. And here's who I hope I am connecting with today. I don't know who has found this little podcast that I record in my basement office. It was started primarily as an outlet for creative energy during the COVID crisis. I have no idea who might pick this up and listen. I don't market it. I don't seek sponsors. I just write, record, and speak my thoughts that are burgeoning inside me. But if I could pick, here's who I hope to find. I hope to speak to those who, deep down inside, believe there is more when it comes to faith. You haven't seen it yet, but you know it's got to exist. You've grown, you've grown disillusioned by the predominant messages handed to you. Messages that have a soundness of perfect doctrine but ring hollow when it comes to releasing power in your daily life. The messages sound like anything but good news. And I'm wondering if you're like me, hoping that faith is more than just approved activity, more than a sanctioned sense of duty. Instead, if you're like me, we are asking if faith can take us to a better way of living, to a genuine sense of peace, a brilliant expression of love, and a restored sense of good when it comes to the good news. In the previous episode, I described the simplicity of the faith that I now possess, but it wasn't always this way. Over the years, the requirements I held in my mind grew more and more complicated, which included excessive study, spiritual disciplines, and rigorous Bible reading. I wasn't able to keep up with the 52 life-exploding sermons I was supposed to consume each Sunday morning. Somewhere along the way, I lost sight of the point, but I think I've found it. I had it once, but strayed from it, and now I'm back. And here it is. Here's what I have returned to. And it's summarized very simply in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 6. Regardless of the importance of the rules you are being convinced to keep, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It can't be that simple, can it? As the rules about faith began to stack up, I, I found I had turned the New Testament into the New Leviticus. And the thing about rules and laws, they only prove who is right or wrong. They don't speak of love or relationship. And let me explain how all that has changed for me. As I said before, for me, faith only has two simple requisites. They are, I must believe that God exists, and I must believe that he rewards those who seek him. That's it. That's all. Everything in addition I was doing did not fall under these two categories. 
those things became superfluous. And today I want to describe how the first requisite took shape for me. My, my life of faith starts with this, believing that God exists. And this is a pretty open-ended, but also pretty simple point. Which means to me that I don't have to have it all in place when I come to God. Some would disagree with this statement, but allow me to expand my thought process. I grew up going to a Baptist church as a kid. I spent enough time at revival meetings to forge a picture of God that he was constantly angry. He was angry at me. He was angry at the world, angry at all the sin, and so on. And I can see now how much of this came from the internal, unresolved anger of those preachers. I was afraid of them, thus I was afraid of God. But I had enough exposure to Scripture in that time to come to a conclusion at age 17 that God was offering me salvation and that I better take it or else I was going to hell. So I prayed with my mother on Saturday evening, June 20th, 1981, and began a life of faith that would forever alter the course of my life. I have since discovered there's a whole different picture I've seen now about the person and the character of God than him just being pissed at me. But that's how I came to him as a 17-year-old. That's how I believe he existed as a mean, old, angry God. And I wanted to please him because I was afraid of him. How else would a teenager think? I believe he existed and that he would in turn reward me with salvation, and that's how it got started. But I would add, gladly, it only got better from here. Anyone who comes to God is only acting on a small portion of the truth. Nobody gets it all right the first time. And just like a child, I grow into maturity. I don't come out of the womb speaking fluently. I need to continue to grow in my knowledge and understanding of God. And the best place to start that discovery process is in the scriptures. In my first step of faith, if it's to believe that God exists, my subsequent steps will include continually, continually learning what his person is like. What do I think God is like? And I will offer two starting points in answering that question. One, I can look at what the Bible says about who God is, and that sounds reasonable and sound. But there's another starting point that I believe is equally important, and that is, how do I feel about him? But should what I feel matter, and I would say absolutely matters, because remember, our ideas and our thinking are easily shaped by those who have wounded us. Thus, I am reacting to the hurt instead of acting out of an ideal. Consider these learned qualities. One, the ability to trust. If I find it hard to trust people, I will find it hard to trust God. 
God is a person and a personal being, and I can't take away that dynamic. Another is the presence of anger. If I experienced authority that was angry, I will transfer that sense toward other authority, especially toward God. Why would he not be angry with me? And if anger is the predominant emotion I receive from spiritual authority, I will view God through that lens. Years ago, I was driving in the car with my daughter, and she was probably five or six at the time. She was sitting in the back seat, and I had some preacher or some radio station on and and I wasn't really even paying attention and in a little bit my daughter said daddy can we just not listen to the angry guy and that little six-year-old girl picked up the anger in his voice that I was not even paying attention to I said honey absolutely and I turned it off if that's how I see God, is it possible to know what God thinks of himself? And I believe so. And this brings me to the subject of, of identity. Understanding identity has been the most useful discovery as I grow in faith recently. And what is an identity? It is the image I have of myself that influences my behavior. What I think about myself is how I will act and display that image. It's also a role that I play. See, I am one personality, but I have multiple identities. I'm an introvert, but I'm also a father. I act like what I think a father should be. Therefore, I relate to my kids as a father. I provide, I support, I encourage. I try to think like a father, continually asking, what do my children need to succeed? This sense of identity influences how I act toward my family. Another identity is I'm a chef. Even though I... At first, I didn't call myself one because it took a few years to embrace that title because I had no experience, no culinary education. I felt I didn't deserve that identity. But over time, as I stayed in that role, I became comfortable with it. Now when people address me as chef, I know they are speaking to me because I now see myself as chef. And it's the same as calling someone coach who you've never played for. It's just because everybody knows that person through that identity. And I think understanding identity is critical for developing a life of faith. What I think about myself will influence everything. But not only what I think about myself, but what I think about God needs to be fully assessed. So this is what I think about myself. Is it possible to discover what God thinks about himself? How can we possibly know 
what an infinite God thinks. Well, he's given us some clues in the scripture. God is referenced by multiple identities. He's known as creator, master, or Lord. He's referred to as the good shepherd. He is the king of kings. He is a mighty warrior. But of all of his identities, I believe there is one that he wants to communicate above the rest. It's the overt identity in the teachings of the gospel of Jesus. He is Father. And why Father? Because this is the predominant way Jesus referred to God in heaven. He said, I I come from my Father in heaven. I've come to do what my Father desires. I do everything in my Father's name. It is also in this identity that we are taught how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. This is one of the identities through which he invites us to relate to him closely. As I come to God believing that he exists and rewards me, by faith I can believe that he exists as a father Therefore, I can come to him as a child would its father. And why, why would he use this identity? What does it say about him? Well, one, it's very personal. Good fathers want their children to know them. It's also a very risky comparison. Fathers don't have the, very, the best track record these days. And this clip from Wikipedia shows that. An exact number is hard to pinpoint, but of the nearly 15 million single-parent-led households in the United States, more than 80% of them are led by single moms. This means that more than 22 million children across the country under the age of 18 are being raised without a dad at home. And you might say in response to this, why does God want me to think of him as a father? I hate my father, or I don't even know who he is. That would be in line with these statistics. And why would God choose such an unstable identity? Well, reality doesn't negate the existence of a standard or an ideal. Just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Over 4th of July, my niece, my niece Sarah was telling me stories about people who have reportedly seen the Oklahoma octopus. It's a freshwater phenomenon supposed to be found in some of the lakes in southeast Oklahoma. And I quickly refuted the story by stating my authority as someone who grew up in Oklahoma and saying, I never saw one. And her reply was perfect. Well, there you go. Since you haven't seen it, that's proof it doesn't exist. And I caught what she was I caught what she was meaning. Existence of an ideal is not dependent on me having experienced it. So what is the standard? Well, I again, I must believe that he exists and he invites me to know that he exists as a good father. 
and he rewards me as a father would his children. This is a very first step of faith. I must believe that he rewards me as I seek him as father. And you might say, well, again, what, do I, what if I hate my dad? Am I SOL? No, not at all. He's far bigger than that. Next time, let's talk about how to move past a negative view of God toward one of freedom and trust. Even if you have a good idea of Father, our Heavenly Father is far more engaged in our lives than we can ever imagine. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. 